Lord, speak to me, that I may speak in living echoes of thy tone. Amen. Well, we've read it, we've prayed it, now let's seek to expound and apply it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. I'd be most grateful if you would turn back to that passage in your Bible. In the church Bibles, it's 1,197. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the first eight verses. It's already been pointed out that here we have some of the very last words spoken or written by the Apostle Paul. They were probably recorded just weeks, possibly even days, before his martyrdom. It's believed that Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Way near Rome. The prospect of death, of course, concentrates the mind wonderfully. And of the many things that might have been on Paul's mind just at this time, there can be no doubt on what he's concentrating on in our passage tonight. It's all about faithfulness to the word, verse 2. It's about maintaining sound doctrine or teaching, verse 3. It's about keeping the faith, verse 7. That much, I think, is clear, but I want to ask two questions about all of this. With regard to maintaining or remaining faithful to God's word, my two questions are, but how and but why? The how and the why, then, of remaining faithful to God's word, which is so clearly so important to Paul as he writes these words to Timothy. So the first question is, then is this, how should we remain faithful to God's word? And I find in this passage two answers to this question about how we should remain faithful to God's word. And the first is this, by proclaiming it faithfully, by proclaiming God's word faithfully. Verse 2 in particular I point you back to, where Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Now, of course, we're not just talking about a word, any word. It is the word. It's God's word. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's called the word of Christ, because much of it was given by Christ, and all of it bears witness to Christ. It's also called the word of God's grace, because it celebrates the free grace of God as seen in the gift of his own Son. It's called the word of the cross, because in the death of Christ, God's power and his wisdom are revealed. It's called the word of the gospel, because it brings glad tidings of great joy to all people. It's called the word of the kingdom, because it holds out the hope of an everlasting kingdom of righteousness and peace. It's called the word of salvation, because the purpose for which it was given is the rescue of sinners. It's called the word of truth, 
because it comes to us as the inspired scriptures. It's called the word of life because it reveals to a dying world God's plan for life and immortality. It's called the word of faith because faith is the proper and sufficient response to it. If, that, if that's something of what Paul means then by the word, it's no wonder then that he urges Timothy not only to hear and believe and obey and guard and suffer for and continue in such a word, Timothy is also to preach it. Now, the word preach does not just refer to sermons delivered in church on Sundays. It refers to any kind of proclamation. And it isn't just the job of ministers and pastors to proclaim God's word. It's also the responsibility of lay preachers, leaders of small groups, leaders of children's and young people's classes, and perhaps neglected, but in a sense, most important of all, of parents in the home. Indeed, there's a role for every Christian to proclaim God's word as they seek to, in the words of Peter in one of his apostles, to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. This, then, is the key imperative of this passage, to proclaim God's word. So important is this that Paul follows it up with no less than eight more imperatives that indicate what it means to proclaim God's words faithfully. Hold on to your seats while I just run through these eight further imperatives around proclaiming God's word. Four in verse two, be prepared, says Paul, in season and and out of season. I take this to mean that there are just two occasions, in fact, when God's word should be proclaimed when we feel like it, and when we don't feel like it. Simple as that. Three more imperatives coming straight up. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. To correct is to use God's word to put bad thinking right. To rebuke is to use God's word to put bad behavior right. But there's an important place for encouragement too. God's people should know how to use God's word to, as, it's, as the saying goes, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the inflicted. All of this should come with great patience and careful instruction, says Paul, which implies systematic, regular, painstaking Bible teaching. Then four more imperatives in verse 5. Keep your head in all situations. That is to say, literally, stay sober. When others become intoxicated with new teaching and experiences, stay cool. Maintain your presence of mind. When others are unstable in thought and behavior, be steady in yours. Then moving on in verse 5, endure hardship. Because if God's people do proclaim God's word faithfully, then they can expect to have to endure hardship. It was the same then as it is now. It is one thing for the proclaimer of God's word to endure the contradiction of sinners. We expect that. 
But to have to endure the contradict of saints, which is what Paul is talking about here, is another matter. And it can hurt and discourage badly. Are any of us, all of us who are teachers of God's word, prepared to speak uncomfortable truths, even if half our hearers threaten to leave? Which appears to be what was at threat here in, uh, in Ephesus, where poor Timothy was pastor. Those who desire to make, re- remain faithful to God's word may well need a considerable capacity for disappointment, endure hardship. And then Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. There are some, according to Scripture, who particularly have the gift of evangelism. I'm not aware that Timothy had the gift of evangelism, but just like all of God's people, he is required and expected and encouraged to do his bit to share the gospel, the good news. Because God's word needs to reach far as well as near. And how many of us, even though we call ourselves evangelicals, followers of the evangel, the good news, have retreated from the work of the evangelist? Have we at best focused on invitation evangelism at the expense of invasion evangelism, if you follow my drift? But we are not doing the work of evangelists if we do nothing more than put up notices outside our churches saying, everyone welcome. Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men and not merely keepers of the aquarium. In all these ways, then, Timothy is called to faithfully proclaim God's word. And so, it says here, to discharge all the duties of his ministry. And so are we today. But we do not remain faithful to God's word only by proclaiming it faithfully. There's a second thing in this passage too. We are also to, uh, to remain faithful to God's word by hearing it faithfully. What's the point of speakers if there are no hearers of God's word? Verses 3 and 4, for the time will come, writes Paul, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, so you see here that the emphasis is not so much on what the teachers are up to as to what the hearers are up to. And many books have been written and many conferences organized on faithful preaching. But when did you ever pick up a book or attend a conference on faithful hearing of God's word? Yet it's vitally important, isn't it? And the very reason why Timothy needed to be so determined in speaking God's word faithfully was that he could expect resistance from his hearers. In this regard, Timothy was to expect difficult times. In fact, it's perfectly clear that these difficult times had already begun. Paul refers to hearers who have itching ears. There's a wonderful picture, isn't it, about ears that itch and need to be satisfied. You know, satisfy the itching by giving some new, some novel teaching. Here are some people who want teaching that will suit their own desires, that will tell them 
what they want to hear. Here's consumerism, first century style. Consumerism with respect to the truth and not wanting to hear the truth is not a new phenomenon. As hearers of the word, let's take care that our ears are not too itching for new and unscriptural teachings. Don't ask for and don't accept anything less than the whole counsel of God. And as hearers of the word, let's encourage those who proclaim the word. Don't just tell us whether you enjoyed our talks. Tell us if you, if you found them helpful, stimulating, challenging, difficult maybe, puzzling or provocative. Examine the scriptures yourself to see if what we say is so, just like the, the Berean Christians did. Have high expectations when you sit under the word taught and preached. Expect God to speak to you from his word. You rightly expect us to work hard at preparing and delivering our messages. Please do your part by working hard at listening and responding to them. It takes two to make a sermon. It takes two to do anything with the teaching of the word of God. How do we remain faithful to God's word? By proclaiming it faithfully, but also by hearing it faithfully. That's something about how we remain faithful to God's word. But now I want to move on to my second question. Why should we remain faithful to God's word? And again, I want to give my answer in two parts based on this passage. We find in this passage two great incentives for being faithful to God's word. First of all, look who's coming. Look who's coming. Paul sets the whole thing up, his whole plea to Timothy in verse 1, with a solemn charge. A solemn charge that he utters in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You can see, can't you, that Paul is acutely aware of the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. But his particular emphasis is not so much on the present as on the future. Christ Jesus, he says, will judge the living and the dead. I don't know if you regard that word judgment as a wholly negative thing. I hope not, because judgment means justice. Judgment means putting the world back to rights. It's a great thing to look forward to. But on the other hand, no one will escape divine judgment, and in particular, all who preach the word of God and all who hear it must give an account to Christ when he returns. Wasn't it Christ himself who spoke of being held to account for every idle word that we speak? Paul also refers in verse 1 to Christ's appearing and his kingdom. Now that little word translated appearing was used in connection with a Roman emperor's visit to a town or province. The streets would be cleaned and everything would be put in place in preparation for the visit of the emperor. And so Christians are to do their work in such a way as to be ready for Christ's appearing. What a difference this 
should make to everything that we do. How liberating it is to do everything in the light of Christ's appearing and in preparation for his appearing. We can afford, you know, to be less concerned about gaining the, gaining the approval of others. We don't need to be so, in, uh, so oversensitive to criticism. We can be protected from that self-centeredness that demands thanks and praise from everyone around us all the time. We don't need to be so hurt by the ingratitude of others if the thing we covet most is the well done of Jesus Christ when he returns. Look who's coming. But also, says Paul, look who's leaving. Because it's Paul himself who's about to leave. In fact, in verses 6 and 7, he virtually writes his own epitaph. He talks about his departure. Now, in a passage full of images and pictures, the image here that Paul conjures up is that of a ship being loosed from its moorings. Already the anchor is weighed, the ropes are slipped, and the boat is about to set sail for another shore. But before this new and exciting voyage begins, the great apostle glances back over his 30 years of Christian ministry. And he says this, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now the picture here, I think, is that of an athlete. It's as though Paul is saying this, I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have played by the rules. I have not cheated. And then he says, there's waiting for me the crown of righteousness. This is the laurel wreath that was given to the winner of the games. And this applies, says Paul, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for and looked for Christ's appearing, Christ's return. Now, we cannot all be Paul's or even Timothy's, but we too can fight the good fight and finish our race and keep the faith. We too can leave this life with a good conscience before God. There's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress that describes old Honest's passage across the river of death. The river, says John Bunyan, at that time overflowed its banks in some places. But Mr. Honest, in his lifetime, had spoken to his friend Good Conscience to meet him there, the which he also did, and lent him his hand, and so helped him over. That's one of the things on my list of not so much before I die, but when I die, is to to meet my old friend, Good Conscience, to help me over the river. There is, throughout this passage, a vivid sense of the changing of the guard, or to keep the athletic metaphor, the passing on of the baton. God buries his workers, but God's work goes on. Who will step up to the plate? Claude Scott is retired from his day job, but he's stepping up to the plate to go back to that same place where his parents were missionaries to do further work in teaching the word of God to the people there. 
you, we have an opportunity just in a few weeks' time to learn more, have further training on how we can handle and teach the Word of God. Who, old or young, will step up to the plate and pick up the baton from the Pauls and the Timothys? John Stott, that great Christian teacher and leader, who himself has uh, finished his public ministry a year or two back, once wrote this. The torch of the gospel is handed down by each generation to the next. As the leaders of the former generation die, it is all the more urgent for those of the next generation to step forward bravely to take their place. We cannot rest forever on the leadership of the preceding generation. The day comes when we must step into their shoes and ourselves take the lead. That day had come for Timothy. It comes to all of us in time. Some of you young people will need to step forward and begin to take roles of leadership and teaching and not leave it to us older ones. But let's all make up our minds that by God's grace, we will be faithful to his word as we proclaim it and as we hear it. And let's keep before us the blessed hope of Christ's return as judge and king. Let's thank God for those who have gone before and let's pick up the baton from them and run our race with energy and determination until we reach the very end. Let's pray. I'd like to invite you to return in your minds to those one or two or three things that you hoped to achieve before you die. Some of those may have been to do with progress that you wish to make as a Christian man or woman, develop some aspect of your ministry perhaps, walk more closely with God. For others of us, it is a longing and a prayer to see someone whom we know and love, are very close to, come to know Jesus for themselves. Whatever it is that we long for before God now, may God equip us to run the race and see his purposes for our lives fulfilled and achieved beyond our wildest dreams. Amen.